Hey there, I'm Gilad Barash, and welcome to Who's Your Data, the podcast that deals with how data influences life and how life influences data, the human side of data analytics. Our guest today is Dr. Melinda Hahn-Williams, Chief Data Scientist at Distillery, a company that specializes in building audience solutions for programmatic digital advertising and is on the cutting edge of industry-applied machine learning at scale. Now, Melinda, you and I have worked together for over seven years now, so it's an honor and a privilege to have you as my first guest. Oh, thanks, Claude. That's exactly, that's exactly what I was going to say, that it was an honor to be your guest, first guest, so you stole my line. <laughs> Wonderful. So but this is just a big honor fest. Great. So before we get started, my, my one question that I ask everybody is, I'd like to know if there's one thing that surprised you about yourself during COVID. Yeah, so I, I think like a lot of people, this time has really sort of been a chance to reshuffle my values. So I've, mm. I've escaped the city and um, have been staying with family in Colorado uh, since last summer. And it's, it's really, it's the first time that I've lived so close to so much extended family for so long. And, and I've realized that that's really important and valuable in a way that I hadn't necessarily thought about before. So that's been nice. Okay. And that can be challenging too, I'm sure. But uh, for those of us that are stuck in our small New York apartments, we're, we're totally jealous. Yeah, big sigh of relief to just have space. Yes. So Melinda, you've been at Distillery for about, I guess, over seven years now. And um, how did you get into data science? Like, was it intentional or what pushed you towards that path? Can you talk a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. And it was, it was totally a wandering path. This is definitely not where I was aiming to get to, you know, at the, at the beginning of my career. I started off in physics and I did a PhD in applied physics. I was working on um, nanoscale transistors and then I was working on solar cells for a while. Um, and then I think what really shifted my view and made me realize that I wanted to find something outside of academia was I had an experience working for a friend's startup. Um, it was a, it's like a radiator retrofit company. It's called Radio Lab, Radiator Labs. They still exist. Um, and it's like to solve that problem where, you know, everyone in New York has a radiator. It's right next to your window and it's too hot and you open your window. And so you have all this heat going directly out the window. So a well-known problem for New Yorkers. Yeah. <laughs> familiar problem. So, so we started a company to solve this problem and um, I experienced something that I had never experienced in academia, which is that he needed my help today. And the result that I came up with today, he was going to show to someone tomorrow. And the needs were just so much more immediate and pressing and, um, and really satisfying in a way that I hadn't felt mm. um, working on technology that was totally cool and exciting, but wasn't going to sort of happen for 30 years. And, um, and that was really what made me realize I, I needed to, to look outside of academia and start to look at industry. And I, um, I spent some time teaching myself more machine learning and more of the skills that you would need for a data science type job. Um, and then just started looking around and sort of accidentally ended up in advertising, um, which has been a fun field to work in. Yeah, I, uh, I ended up there um, accidentally as well. And uh, it's definitely been a great experience. So this journey of getting to data science and to where you are today, you know, everybody brings in their own experiences to this journey. Do you have certain experiences that shaped your voice in data science and your path and thoughts for other people on what lessons to learn along the way? Yeah, I think that's on the question of sort of, of your, your voice and finding your voice 
as a professional, like in any job, I think that's something that probably everyone deals with. And I, I sort of picture people, you know, practicing their confident walk and their confident handshake and all that. Um, but I, I do feel like when you are the only one of something in a room, you sort of feel that mm-hmm. pressure a little more amplified to sort of trying to figure out how to be. And so I feel like I've definitely had experiences um, throughout both my education in, in school, being sort of like one of few women in a physics class um, through being uh, maybe one of few women on a tech team, both watching how the few other women try out like what their approach is and, and testing out sort of what works for me in a way that still feels like me. Because I think one thing that happens yeah. also is you can, you're sort of told also, this probably is true for anyone, but you're sort of told how given advice on how to be. And for women, it's like, make sure you're assertive, but not bitchy, or like, there's all these sort of lines like that. And so I think it's nice to sort of be able to, uh, to explicitly go through that process where you recognize that you are finding your voice. And so you're, you're kind of testing out different ways to sort of shape yourself in a way that feels like something, someone who's actually you and some, something you can actually, you know, a way you can actually live long-term and feel good about. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. And, and I think it goes back to the issue of having inclusivity in your teams, in your workforce. And um, when, you know, certainly being, let's say the token woman on a team or the token person of color on the team or the token LGBT person on a team doesn't allow you to have that, perspective of seeing other people who are like you. And that is a very strong argument in in my mind and something that I always advocate for is that for these diverse populations that we want to have as part of our workforce, there needs to be a community for each of them, not only so that they feel at home and feel like that they can be themselves, but also exactly this, to have role models, to have examples, to see how other other people in their in their community act, behave, react, etc., and to learn from them. So I, I agree that it's in terms of what you're saying of having role models and examples. It's it's very important to have them for the group of people that you belong to. Totally, and I think having role models and examples is so important, and and not just because you want to picture being that person, right? Because it could be an example of a way that you don't want to be. And then it could also, I think it's also just a really valuable example to see that there can be variety and that that's okay too. Because I know a really common way to try and figure out how to fit in, in a group where you feel different is to figure out how to be like those people, right? That's like the most natural thing is like, oh, I'm in a room full of bros. Like, how do I act more like a bro? And you try to fit in. Yeah. And so when you see more people, not just people who are you know, from the, from the, my point of view as a, as a woman in tech, not just to see other women who may or may not be um, presenting themselves like that, but also other men, just, uh, just people who are just have different personalities and aren't all kind of, you know, at least in your eyes, acting the same way to have more examples of sort of the fact that it's okay to be yourself in a different way and express yourself however, however it feels right. Um, and then still kind of gets the job done at work, right? Gets people to listen to you, but in a way that, that feels right. Right. And it actually is important for you to be yourself because that is the, the, the reason that you were hired is to have your, your, your own perspective and your unique voice that you come in with that is powered by your own lived experiences. And so 
that helps with having a a more well-rounded team and a more well-rounded perspective around the product and around the business. And that actually brings us to a, a really good point that I always think about is that in our industry and certainly in digital advertising, there is a lot of, we work with a lot of data. So there's a lot of bias that can uh, infiltrate that data in terms of presupposed assumptions of who you are, right? We try to build these audiences that we decide people belong to, and then we try to target them based on that behavior or based on their belonging to certain groups. Um, and, and a lot of times it's not so much the bias in the data as it is the bias of how to use the data and what you decide to use it for. Um, have you come across that in your position, which I know the answer is yes, but I want you to talk about it. Um, and how do you think that can be addressed? Yeah, absolutely. I, and I, I think that, that there's, yeah, people talk a lot about, all about bias in, in AI and, you know, this kind of work. And I think, I think it's a really good point that it's, it's not just in the data, it's in how you use it. And, and the example that I always think of that's specific to advertising is, you know, the sort of classic way to advertise a product is to figure out the demographic that is going to buy your product, like the age and gender bracket that is most likely to buy your product, and then find those people and show them the ad for your product. So if you're trying to sell lipstick and you were trying to show digital ads on, on websites, you would try and figure out, you know, who fits the demographic of most common lipstick buyers, gender and age, and, and show them that, that ad. Um, and so I think that's, you know, you can talk about what biases in those models, but then the more important question is just the decision you, you chose in making that model. And, and really, if you're, if you're using, you know, digital behavior to try and figure out who someone is, really, shouldn't you just be trying to figure out who wants lipstick? Like, who cares what age and gender someone is? I just want someone who's interested in buying lipstick, no matter you know what gender they identify with or what age they are. And so it's like you can you can eliminate that bias. It's it's a human. It's not just a data bias, right? It's a human bias, and it's like how we decide. Right, exactly. The decisions bias. that you make to use the data. So, Melinda, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on this podcast is to ask you a question that I've been asked recently, and I thought was a really really interesting question about being in the data science industry, and I wanted to get your take on it. I recently got asked whether you actually need a PhD in order to be a data scientist. And what do you think? Do you need a PhD to be a data scientist? Absolutely not. The short answer is absolutely not. Uh, Do you want the long answer? (laughs) I do, I do, because we have a few minutes to fill. (laughs) So, so, So first, there's a lot of different kinds of data scientists, right? There's, there's like, a range from doing real research and sort of innovating brand new products to maybe testing out different models against each other, or, you know, there's like a, there's like a whole range of things you could be doing. And so I think when people ask, when people wonder if they need a PhD, um, they're really wondering for that sort of researcher position, do you need a PhD to be like a data science research scientist? And, and definitely not. I mean, which I think should be clear if you think about, what PhDs, like what you're actually doing with that PhD. My PhD, I spent six years learning how to make graphene transistors. Like it has nothing to do with what I'm doing right now. Um, so it's, 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 not, it's not like you need to be an expert in making graphene transistors to be a, a data scientist. But I think that the question comes up, I mean, so many of us in, who are data scientists do have PhDs and there's a real reason for that. 
So I think the question is, what is it about a PhD's experience that makes someone a valuable data scientist? And, and what's the, what are the other paths to get there? Right, so that's I, a very good question. And we do at Distillery, we ha we've hired a fair number of PhDs as researchers. And the reason why we've done it is because that is, um, it's a first sort of checkbox to see that that person has done independent research because we're looking for someone that can lead a research project by themselves. And that's exactly what they were doing in their last role as a grad student getting their PhD. So we know that that's something that they can do. Um, but that said, that's not, that's, that's not the only way to get that experience, right? So, and we certainly at Distillery also, we've had many data scientists that don't have PhDs who have also have that experience of independently pursuing questions and answering questions, setting up the project themselves, setting up the, their approach. Um, and it's just, PhD just happens to be sort of like one of the ways to get that experience that comes with its own fancy label that I think can be distracting sometimes. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think the answer that I gave to this question was that you should get a PhD if you want a PhD, um, not if you want to work in data science per se. And also, you don't necessarily have to get it in data science. And in fact, I think there's a lot of value in getting a PhD in a completely unrelated field um, and and being trained in a completely different perspective because you bring that into your work as a data scientist and it can inform a lot of what you do. So like you said, you coming from physics, we've had PhDs that have come in from psychology or bio uh, statistics and all of that experience that um, is outside of data science, I think really helps to inform the work that you do and your perspective coming in. A hundred percent. You said you said so many things that I want to I want to build on. Like you should, yes, you should get a PhD if you want to get a PhD. If you don't want to get a PhD, you should not get a PhD. Like it's it's a it's like a really specific thing to do. It takes a really long time. Um, yes, you're learning one set of skills, but there's lots of other skills that you're not learning at the same time. Like you're not learning domain skills in a in a specific area. You're not learning sort of just normal business socialization, which honestly is helpful. Like there's a lot of things you're not not learning. Um, you're, you're eating beans and rice for, for, you know, five to seven years. Like there's, if you don't actually feel inspired to go become the world's expert on a tiny topic, then you should definitely not get a PhD. Um, but what do you, what can you gain from that experience? Like there's, there's a lot you can gain. And I, I like, like you pointed out the, the sort of different fields of study is so valuable. I mean, one of the other things that's, really valuable uh, in a research career is just sort of having a broad understanding of different ways to tackle problems because someone will come at you with a problem and you come up with a solution that, you know, it might not be obvious unless you're just sort of like familiar with a body of work. And something that's been really interesting at, at distillery is, is people with different, like, as you're saying, people, someone with a psychology PhD just comes at the problem with a whole different set of experiences and tools that are maybe sort of standard in their field and things that, that other people have seen that they've seen over and over that are brand new to someone that's that's in you know physics or, or biology and so that sort of diversity of experience is is pretty cool so yes if you want you should not get a phd unless you want to get a phd but it can build all of these it can get, it can bring it can build a set of knowledge that can happen to be useful for your job in the future and also it does train you to sort of think about your work in a very particular way. 
like many PhDs, will come out of it with a very specific way of, of thinking about setting up the problem and thinking about the data and thinking about the data being separate from sort of the conclusion or the truth. And they'll have sort of like a more systematic way to, to working through a problem um, in that way. Right. I, I almost think of it in terms of being a researcher versus being a practitioner, maybe, where it, the, the skills that you learn as, as a PhD really do pertain to being able to set up, a, ask a research question, set up a research project, understand exactly what goes into that, um, how to separate your data, how to um, make sure that the answer really applies to the question that you asked, et cetera. But there's a whole other element of being more of a practitioner. We're running maybe things that were designed by a researcher, but which still require a a whole set of skills of understanding and knowledge in machine learning that you don't necessarily have to spend those six years training for. You could be training on the job. You could be doing a, a, uh, a two-year degree, a master's in, in data science or something where it can still be very much applied towards the career in data science. Totally. There are a, lot of, a wide range of roles, and there's a lot of really cool practitioner roles out there um, but I do think even for the research roles, I don't think a PhD is required. Interestingly enough, I also had uh, somebody ask me a while back, um, they just based on my LinkedIn profile and, and updates and blog posts and things, they thought that my job was really cool. And they were thinking, should they get a degree in IT because that would lead them on that path? Oh my I was God, like, well, I'm so glad you're bringing this up. <laughs> And I asked, well, ideally, what is the, and they hate IT. And I was like, yeah. so, and so I asked them, ideally, if you could choose, what would you want to get your degree in? And they're like, well, I love communications. I would get a communications degree. And I'm like, you should so get a communications degree because for one thing, spending four years getting a degree in something you hate sounds like hell. Totally. And you probably, there's a big chance that you probably wouldn't even want to finish it. And so yeah. go get a degree in something that you love, that you're passionate about, that you're going to have a perspective about, and then become a data storyteller. If you're interested, you can learn SQL and you can learn Python online, but bring the skills that you've learned into your job as an analyst is invaluable because every analyst can learn SQL, but not every analyst is going to have a communications background. Totally. I, I just, I think the most important point there is you cannot follow somebody else's winding path. And, and we all have winding paths. Like in any career, if you look at like a decades long career and you look at the steps that, some, that someone took, so many people's paths are just so winding and circuitous. And that's because that's just, that's just how it turned out for them. Like one, every, every step they right. took sounded like a good idea at the time. I always every think time. of it as like, I'm following a greedy algorithm, like right in front of me, what are my options? Which one looks like the most appealing option right now? You can't, I, I can't presume to think that far into the future, like what, what's going to evolve in both with me and the world and predict like this winding path. And the thing that you absolutely can't do is imitate somebody else's winding path. It, it's, right. it's true. And every, I was listening last night to an interview with Frank Oz, who's the guy who did the voice for. Of course, um, Yoda. Yeah, Ozzie Yoda, Miss Piggy. Like yeah. he also was a director. He like did all this stuff. And it's like, he he went to journalism school. Like that's what he wanted to do. And then he eventually became the voice of Yoda. And it's like, does that mean that if you want to be like 
the world's most famous living puppeteer, you should go to journalism school? No, <laughs> that's ridiculous. Like that's, right. that's that much is obvious, and yet it's not obvious. If I want to be a data scientist, should I go get a PhD in physics? Which I think is like like so we at the time when when you and I go out started in data science, it was like a new field. The wor words were just starting to get defined, and like there was definitely no such thing as a degree in data science. People were kind of finding their way into it, and they had degrees from every direction. Now, I interviewed someone for a role recently who said the reason why they went to go get a PhD in astronomy is because they wanted to get a data science job. And I almost huh. fell out of my chair. Like, what, why? I, I just can't imagine why you would get a PhD in astronomy unless you were passionate about astronomy and like right. to be an expert in exactly. astronomy. So it's, yeah, you cannot follow someone else's learning path. No. And to that point, that's true. When I was taking the classes in grad school, it was called data mining. Like, yeah. That's how old it was. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. I, I love that answer. And I think that's absolutely right. You have to, first of all, I think that the best way to be successful in your path is to do something that you love and you're passionate about. And from that, everything else will hopefully eventually flow. And so don't think 10 steps ahead, but think of what you want to do now. And especially in today's interconnected world where everything is online, everything is related to data and IT. And if you want to end up going in that route, there will be paths and there will be ways to do that. I think we see that too. We have analysts that came from a creative writing background, that came from business background, and each one of those backgrounds just makes their perspective unique and elevates the the value and the contribution that they bring to the to the team. Totally. And they, they all bring something different to the table. Yes. And together it works so well that I really love that. I think one of the things that I love most about this field is that exactly that. People just come to it from so many different directions and meet in the middle and do great things. Well, that's awesome. So you know, we are at the end of the first month of 2021. And so looking forward to the next year, what are things that excite you about this coming year as a data scientist? Yeah, I will tell you something that I, I realized actually just this week that is exciting about where we are, almost where we are in history in data science in terms of, of machine learning. I mean, so, so we were, you're talking about how when we, when you and I entered this field, the classes were called data mining, like the, the available technology was totally different. Um, I got some advice from someone when I was first starting out. There's this really cool thing called scikit-learn. You don't have to implement your own algorithms. They're already implemented for you. It's like super amazing. Um, and that was sort of like the landscape then. Now we're at this position where the stuff that's available on the shelf is like, crazy it's like way beyond that so someone can just pull off the shelf like a pre-trained image recognition neural network and just you know some, someone showed this at a, at a meeting um last week and it's just like oh i just you know I, I just threw this together it's nothing fancy i just pulled it off the, i just downloaded it and did the same threw it together and it's like the stuff that you could that's just on the shelf ready for you to throw together and create like a completely new amazing product is that's really i think what's making now so different in terms of AI and what's making machine learning type applications and AI type applications popping up everywhere is because like 
all this hardcore stuff has already been done. It is just sitting on the shelf waiting for us to plug into stuff. That's a very good point. And it definitely makes uh, data science more accessible to people starting out. So as we're talking about emerging trends and sort of new things in AI, I don't know if you've heard about this, but Google recently revealed an application for their AI environment that is about artificial intelligence created desserts. Have you heard about this? No, I haven't. Okay, so it's inspired (laughs) by an increase in searches for baking throughout the pandemic. And they wanted to understand the science behind what makes cookies crunchy, cake spongy, and bread fluffy. And so, and things like that. So they built a model to predict whether a recipe, a given recipe, was a cookie, a cake, or bread based on the ingredients and the amounts. So a recipe might come back as, say, 97% bread, 2% cake, and 1% cookie, right? Um, And then they attempted to mix the attributes together into what they build as, like, two completely new baking recipes. A cakey, which is supposed to be half cake and half cookie, and a breaky, which is supposed to be half bread, half cookie. Um, and so my first question to you is, would you try these desserts? Yes, Do you hard think, yes. <laughs> yes, you think the world is ready for AI-driven baked goods? Ooh, that's a, that's a bigger question. I mean, the one question, if you, if you handed me a breaky and asked me if I wanted to taste it, I mean, that's, that's easy. Is the world ready for AI-driven baked goods? I don't know. Next, we're going to have AI-driven art and music and poetry. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. I guess we well, they claim some of those things. They claim that this kind of machine learning could help human bakers by answering what fundamentally scientifically makes a piece of cake different from a slice of bread or a cookie. And I'm wondering, are those questions that really need to be asked or answered? <laughs> what, was that, what was that viral croissant? Uh, the cronut. The cronut. Yeah, they should run the cronut through that. That's true. They, I guess they would need to you know, add some new categories for for croissants and donuts. Yeah, and but interestingly I guess, enough... I wonder they, if it's inspired um, by the cronut at all, like I know. the success of the cronut. I think that might be it, because and, and they claim that the, the output is ingredients and amounts, but no actual, obviously, baking instructions. But they mm-hmm. did make a couple of those recipes and tried them out, the breaky and the, and the cakey, supposedly. But yeah, I don't know. I, I think, you know, it's, we're, going, we're getting into new frontiers of uh, yeah, AI. It's a bold future ahead of us. Yeah, it's, I mean, from here to Skynet becoming self-aware, I think, is shorter than we realize. So, uh, Melinda, I, this was a lot of fun. Um, thank you so much for being on the inaugural episode of Who's Your Data? <laughs> thank you so much for having me, and I am honored to be your inaugural guest. Well, thanks for joining us today and listening to this episode. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed, send them to now at gmail.com. That's now, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks and see you next time on Who's Your Data?